didn't think that the coronavirus obviously was going to be as, because I look at it like it's a flu, right? Like obviously, you know, if it's flu season, you're going to take extra precaution. And, but everyone seems to be completely freaking out about this for good reason. Sure. Um, it's just, I didn't realize the implications globally and it, and the yeah. implications are, are quite, quite high. Unknown, right? Like, that's that's the reason why there was there was a panic, and I think mm-hmm. there was also a panic in the market, just just because. Well, number one, valuations in the overall market. Like I never did like I love the market, like the technology S and P, but I was extremely bearish on it. I called basically the low like, when it was like at sixteen hundred, and then I was saying, okay, next target's thirty two hundred. We got to that area, and everything above that is froth. We need some kind of correction, so the market structure was in place already start a correction. It just needed some kind of catalyst and Mm. usually some unknown event or a black swan event, which would coronavirus would definitely factor in since it's a high impact rare (laughs) and a surprise. So that those are all the things that make for a black swan. And, and the, and the thing is in the beginning, in the initial part of the, the rally, like I'd say from 3,200 up to around 34, uh, you know, that 3,400 area on the S&P as it was marching there. Uh, people, like investors were discounting it and saying, hey, no big deal. But then when, a, you know, a few really smart voices started coming on and saying, hey, you know what? This isn't just like about the little guy panicking. There's like a, there could be a structural supply chain problem that if certain parts of the world are shut down, even if it doesn't affect our area uh, to any great degree, that could prevent companies that are generating profit in the S&P 500. Such as Apple. Yeah, and Apple, and that's just one case, but obviously a huge case considering that it represents a massive percentage of the market. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so just stuff like that is enough to spook the market. And, you know, the thing is about market highs, like when you start marching up to the high, usually most of the volume comes in towards the high because it attracts people. You know, the average person seems to think if prices are going up, it's, it's a good thing. Well, it's not a bad thing if you're near the midpoint or the low of a cycle, but if you're at like the stretch to the extreme in the, in the time part of the cycle, as well as in the business cycle, as well as in valuation levels relative to history, or any metric that makes sense, then yeah, you could, you know, uh, get a situation where lots of people who piled in near the highs compared to the rest of the trend end up being very weak hands. And because volatility uh, and the perception of forward volatility decreases as the market rises, the, the ability for small players in the market to leverage their capital and use margin in order to get bigger positions because with less capital, and it's not just the little guy, but even the big guy could do that. Uh, and the big hedge funds, they tend to do that when volatility goes down, but th- when the party ends and the catalyst event comes in, like uh, something like we had last week, then you don't only get the, the negative effect that would ordinarily happen in a bull market, but when you're in the late stage and volatility is like squash, you get a situation where uh, you have forced liquidation 
and not just on like the size of their portfolios, but maybe the size of two or three times their portfolios if they're heavily leveraged. And the market, you know, if there's no natural buyers, uh, you know, in the market because of the panic, you end up getting an imbalance. And uh, that's kind of what happened last week. The thing is, even though it didn't make sense, the imbalance in certain areas of the market, doesn't matter because the order matching uh, is the mechanism is such that if it can't find somebody, it just gaps to the next area. And if there's forced liquidation from margin selling, they'll usually sell the, the strong stocks that are poised to go higher just to cover the losses of something else. But it, it's disconnected with the reality of the situation. I'm the reality of the situation is that um, there's a crisis uh, of confidence in, in, in the markets and uncertainty that's uh, causing people to sell. And because of that, and combined with the fact that there could be real economic ramifications to what's happening worldwide, the central banks around the world to alleviate those concerns, uh, you know, needed to do some kind of uh, lowering of interest rates in order to, uh, you know, make people feel better about, uh, you know, any kind of debt that they may have going forward or in case they have to incur debt, uh, you know, in the event that they're out of work or whatever. So uh, that's why there was, so today it's interesting because today I put out a, a notice. Well, actually it wasn't, yeah, it was this morning. I put it out about two hours before the Federal Reserve in the United States made an emergency call before their, their normal meeting, which happens uh, every so often. And uh, they lowered interest rates by 50 basis points, which is huge. Mm -hmm. If that's huge on a normal meeting, usually like, you know, if it's 25 basis points, you get a pretty significant market uh, reaction. But if it's 50, it's, it's huge. But if it's an emergency one, then it's even bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some people will say, well, you know, lowering interest rates only goes so far. It's not a fiscal measure. It's not like it's targeting a specific part of the economy. It's only kind of usually going to the wealthy and, and speculators. And, and part of that's true. But, you know, when we talk about the stock market, which is what we're talking about, that is not the same thing as the economy. And usually when the economy goes one way, uh, the stock market goes the other way. And this has been the case for a while. Like, you know, there hasn't been dramatic improvements in gross domestic uh, product that you would expect with such a rally in the stock market. So obviously a lot of this rally that's been taking place since the crash of 2009 was fueled by, uh, you know, easy money policy of central banks around the world and basically allowing, uh, you know, for, and, as, and not just that, but also the ability for big companies and banks to borrow money and then, you know, for free pretty much. And, uh, and then uh, on top of that, basically buy back their shares with that borrowed money. And when mm -hmm. you buy back the shares, you're removing the supply in the market. And if there's less supply and the same amount of demand, the price is going to go up. So they're artificially making the market look as if the economy is good to keep their, you know, their, their paycheck and, this, and the shareholders happy because the the attitude of the investing public right down, you know, from the top down to the retail investor has been 
short-term gratification rules. Who cares about the long-term? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because it's in the, in the long-term, we're all dead. That's kind of the way they see it, you know? So, uh, and the reality is, you know, a lot of the people that are, you know, still have a pretty good part of their life that they need to survive <laughs> with the money they have. And you know what? The, the party can only go on so much longer, but you know, there are pockets of disruption happening in the economy, in tech land and biotech land and in, in the healthcare space where there are, there is opportunity and it's just a matter of being able to, to seek it out. And especially now given easy money policy uh, with the risk of both inflation and deflation being the big boogeyman in the room, uh, investors are, uh, you know, flocking to uh, hard assets like real estate, gold, silver, palladium, platinum. And, uh, but right now it's looking like silver is going to be the big one going forward. It usually follows gold. What makes, uh, so what makes the hard assets so attractive at this point? Well, because central banks have created a situation where you've got bonds that are now like trading negative. (laughs) So like when I say bonds, I talk about like the, the yields on the bonds are actually negative in a number of parts of the world. Uh, in the States, they haven't gone negative yet, but they are at historically exceptionally low levels and going lower, as seen this morning, and with the likelihood of them continuing to go lower uh, if this uncertainty does not rein itself in, which I just do not see how that's going to be the case. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that has nothing to do with the fact that the stock market could continue to escalate uh, to dramatic heights. So the key thing is, how do you make money? Uh, in this environment. And going back to your question, because uh, the market, like any market is, it's a competition, right? For, um, you know, eyeballs, traders, eyeballs to notice that trends are happening. And, and it's also a, a competition for where capital should flow. Capital loves flowing to the area that's going to, you know, generate them the safest kind of return you know, balanced, you know, a balanced return. So for safety and and risk and, you know, for a long time, uh, the precious metals, you know, have been hated like, you know, gold several, you know, many, many years back was up near 2000 and it as, you know, it slid down to, you know, uh, you know, nearly, you know, a thousand points. Like, and that's a pretty big drop, but it's not surprising. Uh, you know, interest rates at that time were significantly higher than they were uh, now. So why does that make sense? Well, it makes sense because gold and silver are assets that don't pay dividends. They don't pay yield. You, it's almost a negative yield because if you actually buy bullion, physical bullion, you have to store it somewhere. You're mm-hmm. not going to want to like store it in your house because in times of crisis, you know, somebody could break into your house and you lose your, your fortune. So, which is part of the reason why we have banks and why we put things away in vaults. And so there are special dealers in the, uh, in the bullion space that do, you know, have professional storage services. So you basically, it's kind of almost like having a negative yield. 
bond has a slightly negative yield in that sense. And same with silver. Uh, but how are if, things changing now? But now because interest rates have gone negative in many parts of the world. And because the US is, even though rates are not yet negative in the United States, but heading in that direction, uh, the US is, aren't the only people in the world that are interested in buying gold. You've got the Chinese, you've got India and many other central banks around the world that are increasing their stockpile in, in gold bullion and silver bullion. And to that effect, uh, it's now that much more interesting to be invested in, in gold and silver because uh, now that the competing assets have gone negative, uh, at least gold is, you know, uh, gold and silver are an, are an asset that basically preserve their value over long periods of time and tend to perform well during periods of either extreme uncertainty, uh, periods of geopolitical uh, conflict, uh, periods where uh, there's a shift in the asset classes. Like even if there's a small shift of capital from uh, certain asset classes into gold because of this um, interest now in, in the yield curve, uh, that creates a massive impact in price over a significant period of time. And the reason why it would create a massive change in price relative to other assets is that the liquidity, like the amount of gold, uh, like the gold market and especially the silver market are quite tiny in terms of their market cap relative to the stock market. And the stock market is very, very tiny, obviously compared to the bond market. And even bigger than the bond market is the currency market. And because interest rates, uh, like particularly today in the United States have been lowered, that puts downward pressure on the US dollar. Yes, it makes the US companies more competitive worldwide, but not necessarily if another central bank decides to you know, continue lowering, uh, you know, they, they could continue lowering their rates and then it becomes an infinite circle where one country lowers the rates another follows and you end up getting this massive escalation in, um, in no interest in, you know, investing in bonds for the long term compared to investing in hard assets that would tend to perform well in periods where there's instability. So I think that's a big component. The reason why I like silver more than gold uh, is because silver isn't just a monetary asset that tends to rise uh, for the same reasons that gold rises. Sometimes there's a lag, but it, it usually rises substantially more in a bull market. But also silver is known to be an industrial metal. And a, a good you know, part of the demand for silver is comes from industrial applications uh, in in the in the green energy space, um, and in the medical space, uh, and in the electronics industry, and all those industries are exploding <laughs> to the upside, and they're being disrupted in a big way, and there's going to be greater and greater demand for it. But because we've been in a bear market for so long in silver relative to its historical valuations, lots of mining companies have gone under or have actually um, 
you know, shut down a number of mines because it wasn't profitable. So mm-hmm. the production of, of silver is at historically low levels. And, you know, when you have reduced supply at the same time, you have increasing demand. Uh, that bodes well for a bias in rising prices fundamentally. But also, um, it, it creates a condition where there's just, uh, it doesn't take much for these miners to start turning their minds back on because they do have, you know, there's a lot of them that have substantial, you know, proven reserves. They're just not necessarily pulling it out of the ground. So, you know, now that they're seeing light at the end of the tunnel, you're going to see a lot more mining companies start, you know, taking action, increasing production. And if you could get ahead of that, and have an idea of which companies are likely to benefit the most from this cycle and actually be the change that will actually accelerate uh, their growth cycle, then uh, you, you, know, you could increase the value of your portfolio substantially you know, without necessarily increasing your risk relative to other assets. So that's why I'm invested uh, in, in that area. That's why... Uh, you know, my uh, family's assets are invested in that area quite heavily. Interesting. So this is where it it seems like, I mean, obviously dead air is fine because this isn't live. So uh, if, if it takes you a second to come up with something or if it takes me a second, don't panic. Yeah, um, sure, for sure. So like, I'm just, trying to think like, should we keep it to two things per, since we're, are we going to try to do this every day or or to start, are we going to do it like twice a week? How do you, what do you want the format to be? Like the thing is, I almost, okay, here's, here's what I'm thinking right now. And this is just like off the cut. This is nothing to do. Like pretend this isn't even being recorded, but it is whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, like there's two ways. Like when I, when I like look at podcasts and I, even myself, cause I like detailed oriented stuff, but e- the trend is, is been like bite-sized information. People just love a bite-sized thing. Like you have, there's, there's something you want to tell that's super important and it's like one idea mm-hmm. and, and nobody cares if you're talking for 15 minutes. Like if you could get the idea across and it's like, whoa, he just said it in five minutes. Great. And then he has another idea and it's like, you know, comes out in the, you know, the afternoon you want to like say something, then you, you could say that idea. But sometimes two ideas are connected. Uh, like for example, like you could have asked me like, well, for, here's an example, like the, the S&P, for example, like today, like at the end of the day, when I sent you a message saying, you know, today is a very special day in the S&P. Mm-hmm. Like this is extremely rare event. This happens like once every two years, <laughs> you know, or sometimes not even for a decade, you don't even see this. Mm-hmm. So this is the most unusual day <laughs> and it's the most unusual because when it happens at the end of a cycle, the, and remember how I told you before that markets evolve over time. They become, mm-hmm. as they become more complex, just like a city kind of like, uh, like a cities, like the bigger the city gets, 
the more things that can happen to attract people to the city. So they tend to scale faster than like, let's say mediocre cities. So, so the, the, the benefit to the GDP growth of a bigger city as it gets bigger is even more impressive than a medium city getting bigger, you know, in the same proportion. So mm-hmm. it kind of super exponentially scales. Unlike people that, you know, as they get bigger, they slow down. <laughs> so, <laughs> so cities have, you know, don't have to consume as much energy, you know, as they get bigger to produce the same impact. And if they're super exponentially scaling themselves, they could actually take less energy consumption to produce exponentially higher amounts of output. And I, I think, you know, we're, we're entering that phase of parts of tech. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the underlying reality of what's fundamentally, mm-hmm. you know, carrying the market higher. Like for example, uh, you know, while it's important to understand human perceptions, human behavior and how the madness of crowds drives trends, it's also important to have it grounded in some, you know, level of fundamentals, like meaning like, okay, is there like a fundamental change in capital spending cycles that are, you know, in the market zeitgeist, meaning the spirit of the times of the investor? Is it known to everyone? Is it common knowledge that, you know, technology is and software is eating the world alive? It's like, yeah, it is. And everyone is, is threatened by, you know, the idea that, okay, uh, AI and, uh, you know, is going to take over the world. But that, it's, that's besides the point. I don't believe that. I believe it's going to help, you know, there'll be a lot of augmented uh, intelligence. It's going to help humans become more productive and do things they want to do. It'll just be different sets of jobs. But the point is, it's pretty much fleshed out right now in the investment community at the high levels of where this capital spending is going to be taking place over the, you know, over the coming decades. And rather than focus on, oh, the market's overvalued, despite the fact that we have another, you know, mania upon us because of this buy signal we just got today. Mm. Um, It doesn't mean you have to be invested in the madness. You could kind of find the, the nuggets of uh, reason in the madness. And, and usually when madness takes hold in the overall market, those nuggets of reason get amplified dramatically more than if you invested in the overall market. But you have less risk because you're buying at rational levels of valuation. And when you marry those valuation levels and fundamentals with um, where um, the market microstructure and investor perceptions are going to kind of come together and interact to produce explosive growth, in terms of uh, you know investors being interested in a certain asset, that's where you could really you know make a killing in the market, and that's what this podcast is all about. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so let's go into the you know the exciting thing that happened today. Uh, you're talking about the uh, the gamma the gamma trade buy signal. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Okay. So why don't you uh, for our listeners. Uh, explain a little bit as to what you mean by the gamma trade buy signal. Sure. So basically, there's a couple things I look at. I look at 
I don't look at gamma by itself. I look at gamma uh, exposure of option traders. And I look at that relative to, um, tra to transactions that are taking place um, in, not in the market that's visible, meaning the market that's visible would be the exchange, like whether it's the New York Stock Exchange, things that people would normally see, mm -hmm. but basically in these things called dark pools. So these dark pools are invisible. They, they, they're not actually trades that occur on the stock exchange, but they actually occur off the stock exchange, hidden behind view. And these are dealers, uh, you know, uh, you know, broker dealers that are basically taking exposure inside hidden markets without necessarily moving price in the exchange. And by actually being aware of the size of that dark pool of orders and having insight into the direction of that book of orders, uh, that could give you insight into whether there's an imbalance that may need to be corrected in the future. So now going back to knowing if there's an imbalance at all when combined with that indicator, you, you would have to understand something about this uh, concept in, in, uh, in the options market called the gamma trap. And, and, before we could discuss what the gamma trap is, it's kind of, it would be important to know what the heck gamma is for people that aren't option traders. So gamma is basically, it's the responsiveness of an option contract, the price of an option contract to fluctuations in the price of the underlying security. So let's say you have a stock, let's say IBM, and let's say, Somebody thinks um, IBM is going to, uh, let's say, go up. They would buy calls on IBM. So let's say you bought one call on IBM at a strike price of, let's say, X, and price goes higher than X, then a call buyer would tend to make money. Now, if, it, if the price of the security happens to be near the strike price. So if they're buying a call at X and the price of the security is right in the neighborhood of X, then the gamma of the option will tend to be uh, very important. They'll be important because what it indicates is, as I said before, it's the responsiveness of the option price to the fluctuation in the price of the security, which, which basically means that if let's say there's a one point move in a stock while you're near the strike price, the amount that the option will change will, could, could be dramatically different as you start moving towards or away from that strike price. And by having knowledge of how that rate of change of the option price is changing based on where the stock price is, it could give you insight into imbalances um, in the market that could materialize. And I'll give you an example. 
the, now let's talk about the gamma trap, which would be a good example of this. Let's say you have a situation where, um, let's say you have an extended period of artificially low or depressed volatility. When that happens, that could give way to big spikes in volatility in the future due to the way broker dealers take the other side of the option trade. So what happens is if dealers, let's say, are short gamma, okay, which means that they're selling gamma, the idea that uh, the, the, um, the amount, the response of, a, of an option, you know, how it changes with uh, the movement of price, if they're going short that number, then they're going to start selling the market as the market drops. Then what happens is this could lead to more put buying by the general public because the market starts selling off. People will buy puts in the hopes to make money as the market goes down. And then the dealers that take the other side of the trade will short puts, but because they have to be market neutral because they're just liquidity providers and they don't want to take the, you know, take risk in the market. They just want to help the natural, you know, the natural uh, person who's buying to, uh, you know, to offer them liquidity. They'll have to sell more futures contracts in case stocks are put to them. Because when you actually take the other side of, let's say, a trade where somebody is buying puts and you're selling a put, and price goes the wrong way, you may have to buy back the stock. But to guarantee that they're not gonna be liable to buying back the stock, they sell the stock in, in the market. Now, sometimes they don't sell the stock in the market. Sometimes they'll sell the stock in the dark pool that's invisible to the exchange. And by keeping a tally of how much stock and imbalance is on the dark exchange, where people don't see information flowing. So there's an asymmetry of information between the average investor and let's say the dealer, you could actually capture an arbitrage opportunity. So basically I'm looking at that information in parallel with the idea of studying the behavior of the crowd through analyzing their perceptions and how they, they look at changes in price and trend. And by doing that, I'm trying to get ahead of what the market may be interpreting once that flow of information arrives in the visible market and leaves the dark pool. And today it just happened to give uh, an indicator and an indication. It wasn't just today, gave an indication um, yesterday as well as today. And that's extremely unusual. And, it, and it's even more bullish. The fact that today, was slightly like, like the market pulled back from the high today while this indicator gave an even stronger signal than it did yesterday. And when that happens, the only way that imbalance, you know, that flow of information goes from the dark pool to the investor public in the exchange, it results in a massive unwind of positions. In this case, a massive unwind of shorts to longs. And you're going to get a lot of people 
uh, you know, in for a surprise, who thought the market was going to continue down. And uh, a lot of people that, you know, still believe that there's so much uncertainty in the market. Why would you think the market would go up? But that's actually usually when the market goes up. <laughs> right. Um, it just happens to be that sometimes the market overshoots to the downside before the panic is over. But what I found historically that when these two indicators come together um, inside this, this window of opportunity, it indicates that uh, there's going to be a, a major surprise event where the demand for uh, shares uh, in the market will far outstrip the supply. And uh, that's what I see. And, and, and the thing is, once it starts moving, it's hard for that train to stop. And by marrying that with insight into how people are perceiving trends going into this window, I could get an insight into the duration and the persistence that this kind of uh, surprise could shock the market. And right now it's telling me it's going to shock it for quite a long time. But let's say it doesn't shock it for a long time. We always got to assume that, you know, the world is pretty fluid. Things could happen. So even if it didn't shock it for a long time, the, the expectation that the ex, extreme movement in price to the upside would still be fulfilled. And it might even be fulfilled in a shorter period of time but nonetheless, any, you know, um, getting into the market ahead of uh, the, the visible market and seeing this market action, uh, you could see the S&P spike, you know, you know, towards the 4,000 area, you know, say 3,700 or higher. And that's pretty huge considering we're, we're right now sitting at, you know, we were just sitting at around 3,000. You know, so, and even the highs that we had prior to this, uh, big market crash or a mini crash last week, which was up at 3,400, where that's still 300, you know, S&P points above the high at least, you know, and that's a huge deal because making money in the market for like institutional investors isn't always about, you know, just buying stock. It's also about, you know, making money by buying options. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you only need a small movement you know, in the price of a market, if nobody's expecting that movement and you could buy options at a dirt cheap prices and then sell them at very high value, you know, valuations, even before the move gets to the target. So, you know, in the, in that sense, that would be an application for the sophisticated, you know, option trader, but for the retail investor and the novice investor, that's just, you know, looking to, Hey, you know, how do I get into this market? And if you're, you know, if somebody was unsure whether it was time to invest, I couldn't be more sure that this is the time. Now, obviously, investing, you know, there's risk in investing. Uh, most of the losses that happen in investing isn't because of, uh, you know, the market uh, crashing. It's because people get out on the final day of a market crash to find out after they blink, it's at a new high and they didn't participate in the in the up move so if you could you know mitigate you know and even like remove the a substantial amount of that risk by you know waiting for that market aberration to the downside to take place and then waiting for confirmation of you know when information embedded in this 
dark pool uh, is there before it comes to the market and combine that with how humans are going to perceive information in the future, you could really rein in the risk and shorten the time horizon and, uh, you know, profit making opportunity per unit of time. And given today that most investors and fund managers, you know, get paid for making decisions and delivering results in the short term, uh, I haven't in my experience in, in, in trading uh, for several decades seen any other set of indicators uh, that could actually, you know, time that kind of uh, market action for somebody that's interested in, uh, you know, short-term or long-term action. So what you're saying is get into the market now, ASAP. Yeah, a a a ASAP. Get in, have a core position. And any pullbacks that happen to retest the low of last week, you want to add the rest of your position. So for a real conservative person, I would go in on thirds. I have a third of a position now. For an aggressive person, I would just load the wagon and go three times, you know, leverage yourself three times. But you can't tell that. I mean, sophisticated people do it all the time. There's some guys that'll leverage themselves 200 times. That's just stupid. I mean, you know, actually a, a sophisticated per, per, um, person leveraging themselves three times is probably less risky than somebody going in a third that knows nothing. But, uh, and the reason why I say that is because the person going in a third probably will get panicked out of the market, some of them, if the market retests the low of last week, because they don't have the confidence of going through many market cycles and seeing what happens right after that. They're going to, you know, it's blind faith. It's like, well, should I listen to this guy? You know, like he says that, but you know what? I'm, I'm losing money as it comes down. What right. should I do? Well, if, if that's the nature of how the person's going to trade, then they shouldn't be in the market, like period. But, you know, a sensible thing would be a third now, a, a third, if there's a retracement, you know, towards the low of last week, it may never happen, but usually there's retracement. So even if it goes higher and retraces, it may retrace lower than where you initially got in. It's possible and it may never, but which is why you want a third in because when you get these setups, it doesn't just say you're going to get a move that's going to go back partway to the high. It says you're going to go through the high, blow through it, and blow through it substantially with persistence for enough period of time such that if I get a signal in the future that says, hey, we have the opposite. <laughs> we're now overvalued again. You know, we're at 3,700 or higher and it looks like the liquidity trends are pointing to reigning in, you know, um, risk, then take profit, you know, just get, you know, get out of the, the two thirds of the position that you may be in and just maybe just keep a core. If you're a super long-term investor myself, I just, I just get out and I just get into something else, you know, that has a more attractive valuation, you know, um, but uh, the reason why I like this indicator a lot is because when you're using it on the S&P 500, you're using it on all stocks, <laughs> you know, that are really not, it's not all stocks because all stocks would be tens of thousands, but all stocks that matter in terms of market cap and that have a, an underlying economic effect. Uh, and when you do that, as opposed to just analyzing market action on a single stock, 
you get a much bigger macro perspective of what decision makers are doing because there's only so many you know, places you could hide. And the big institutional guys have mandates to be invested all the time. There's always new money coming in every so often from IRAs and, and just, you know, people making money and they just lock away a certain amount every month. And then these broker dealers or, or, or these investment uh, banks, uh, let's say, or uh, brokers that are investing their money or hedge fund managers that are investing the money, they have to put it somewhere. And because they are, this industry has grown so big, a good part of that money is going to go into the S&P 500, whether they like the valuation of the stocks or not, just because they, if they put it into other areas with low liquidity, then they'll sabotage themselves. And, you know, they're in the business of making decisions and not giving back money to the investor. They're in the business of investing their money. And, uh, yeah, it's sometimes it's not sensible to invest it. Like certainly some advisors should probably just keep it in cash longer or in, in, uh, in right now, definitely to allocate some of that to, uh, silver and gold, but you can't allocate, you know, they're, these are seasoned advisors and they have mandates. They just can't allocate it like an individual can or like I can or you to, uh, you know, they have other people to answer to. So they can't just load the wagon and have 50% of their investment in, in one asset. So, right. so it's, if somebody, you know, had X dollars, then at least putting a third in, to the S&P 500, it is diversified naturally because it's diversified across the 500 stocks. It's not diversified across an asset class outside of stocks, which is why I would, you know, like to marry that with owning physical silver, uh, physical gold a little bit, and uh, and also to juice it up with uh, owning, uh, you know, some uh, junior miners. Uh, in the uh, gold and silver space. But that's a dangerous proposition for people if they don't know which silver and gold miners to invest in. And there's a lot of research that I've done in this space that I've identified like a few names in the space that are of interest, that have a decent valuation. I could throw one of them out there right now. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, one in the gold space that looks interesting on pullbacks is uh, El Dorado uh, and uh, Kinross as well on pullbacks and, and, uh, the other that looks interesting, uh, is, uh, Fortuna silver. Hey guys, thanks for listening. So this podcast is for information purposes only. It's not intended to be investment advice. Seek a duly licensed professional for actual investment advice.